Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Director of the Integrative Medicine Programs here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today on the pod, we're going to talk about the gut microbiome, one of our favorite things, and pancreatic health and disease with researcher and clinician Mark Haupt, MD. Dr. Haupt is a pediatric pulmonologist who has dedicated his career to helping patients with pancreatic disease through his work in academia, the pharmaceutical industry, and his current work as chief medical officer at IFF Health and Biosciences. IFF Health and Biosciences is a company that conducts extensive R&D activities in the fields of food science, microbiology, and molecular biology. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I I am excited about this, too. This is uh, both pancreatic health uh, and putting it together with the gut microbiome are not things we've talked about on this podcast before. So I'm sure our listeners will be really excited to hear about it. So let's get started. Pancreatitis can be a long-lasting condition uh, where the health of the pancreas can worsen over time. What other basics should we know about this disease? Yeah, so there are really three general types of pancreatitis. There's acute pancreatitis, recurrent acute pancreatitis, and chronic pancreatitis. Acute is basically a single episode, and there are a variety of different causes for that. Recurrent is when individuals have multiple isolated episodes of pancreatitis. And chronic pancreatitis is the long-standing condition that worsens over time. And pancreatitis, essentially, the basic form of it is really just inflammation of the pancreas. And in that progression that I mentioned, it's about 20% of individuals who have an episode of acute pancreatitis will go on to have recurrent acute pancreatitis. And then about 30 to 40% of those individuals will then go on to have chronic pancreatitis. And what's really interesting about pancreatitis is this is a condition that affects both children and adults. There are a variety of different etiology that can be from uh, trauma, as we learned in pediatrics, uh, bicycle handlebar trauma can cause pancreatitis. So if you go over the front of your bicycle, it can cause um, pancreatitis. Or there are genetic conditions in which pancreatitis is associated. And then there are also environmental and other host factors that that can lead to it. So it's really a a diverse syndrome um, that there are many different pathways that you can get into it. But I think what's really critical about it is that the health outcomes and the morbidity that are associated with it are are significant and they're profound. Um, and so individuals who have chronic pancreatitis can suffer from a variety of things, including chronic pain, maldigestion, and malabsorption that results from pancreatic insufficiency, so meaning they're not producing the right uh, digestive enzymes in order to digest their food. You can develop diabetes from the scarring and fibrosis and damage that occurs to the pancreas. And there's also an increased risk of potentially developing pancreatic cancer um, from the longstanding uh, com- inflammation and and that occurs from it. And so it's really, a, I think, a, a diverse syndrome in which it, it's not something with which I think a lot of people are familiar with. And as you've pointed out, it's not something you've previously talked about. So I'm excited to, to be here and, and share more about it. That is fascinating, especially that part about um, the the handlebars. I mean, I didn't know that. Have- have that happen to you when you were a kid and you were first learning how to ride the bike or you may have been going too fast and, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Wow. Front wheel hit something and over you go. It's actually a uh-huh. classic uh, pediatric board question that, you know, a child comes to the emergency room with abdominal pain after going over the front of a bicycle and you reflexively look for pancreatitis as the uh, the answer to the question. Huh. Now, what what brought you to focus on on pancreatitis? Interesting question. And so that interest really began when I was in my my fellowship training. And so, as, as you mentioned, I did... Um, uh, fellowship in, in pulmonary medicine. And in that fellowship, really focused on caring for children with, with cystic fibrosis. And about 80 to 90% of individuals who have cystic fibrosis have pancreatic insufficiency, meaning they don't generate the enzymes, so the lipase, the amylase, the protease, to properly digest their food. And it, interestingly, the 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 term cystic fibrosis or the name for the condition when it was first described was actually called cystic fibrosis of the pancreas. Um, and that's how it, it derived its name. And so because of that extracrine pancreatic insufficiency or pancreatic extracrine insufficiency, these individuals don't digest their food properly. And so they get malabsorption. So they get fat malabsorption, protein malabsorption, carbohydrate malabsorption. So they get caloric wasting. And so they don't, you know, grow. And that was originally when cystic fibrosis was first being understood and cared for is really the the digestive challenges and the nutritional failure that led to, unfortunately, the the premature death of these individuals. And it wasn't until that was really understood and how to manage that, that it turned into something that most people I think are more familiar with, which is the respiratory complications. And so really at the heart of cystic fibrosis is care is nutrition and digestion and and the pancreas. And so individuals who have cystic fibrosis take what's called pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, which is basically an exogenous enzymes that they take every time they eat that replaces the function of their exocrine pancreas. And what we've learned in the CF community is that there is a linear relationship between your nutritional status, your lung function, and then your longevity. So really nutritional care in CF is life-saving therapy. And so it was because of that interest in that work, I started to become interested in, in the art and the science of how to manage exocrine pancreatic insufficiency in that population and was, became really quite immersed into that, in that. Then I ultimately transitioned to the pharmaceutical world where I, I furthered that interest in, in working with pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy and really my understanding and vision of it went from, you know, very focused on pancreatic insufficiency and cystic fibrosis to all the other conditions in which it occurs, which includes pancreatitis, but there there are others, and really started to understand even better the role of the pancreas in in health and, and disease beyond CF and really the profound impact that having a poorly functioned pancreas can have on an individual and how much they suffer. Um, and that's really what drove it. And it's been, I would say, core to my career of going from fellowship through to, to the even what I'm doing now. Wow. That's fascinating. And uh, very much of interest to me when you talk about nutrition, we get excited about that. Uh, and I don't think that's, that's a, a way people often think about nutrition as being life-saving, which perhaps would change people's opinion of nutrition if they did. Yeah, it, I mean, it is critical to 
what we did in cystic fibrosis care, but I think just looking at the, the approach, the multi, we took a very multidisciplinary approach to understanding how to manage it. And obviously the, the requirements were there were, were very unique given the physiology of those, those children. But I think having that approach to, you know, thinking about nutrition and health and increasing health span within one's lifespan and how we can think about using nutrition and diet um, to influence our each of our own trajectories or that duration of health span, I think it's critically important. Um, and it's something that, you know, it's accessible to all of us um, in terms of mm-hmm. thinking about the decisions we make. And certainly there are, are barriers, um, which we need to think about how to improve barriers to uh, adequate and appropriate nutrition. Um, but it is, it's, it's something that, that is, we do on a daily basis. Um, and so I, I completely agree with you. So I am interested in nutrition. I'm also interested in the gut microbiome and I like to put those two things together. And that's actually how you and I met. We were at a conference Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you were giving a talk, which kind of blew my mind, to be honest. Um, So let me just give the the listeners a little bit of an intro to that. So you were using an analogy of the progression of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease to steatohepatitis as a model for pancreatitis. Now, that combination, as well as the role of the microbiome, was something I was actually not even aware of previously. And it really struck me as novel and important for researchers and clinicians to begin to understand, even though the science is emerging. And so that's why I reached out to you immediately. I was like, we need to do a podcast on this. Um, So can you tell us about the similarities between those two disease progressions and then the role the microbiome plays in pancreatitis? Yeah, absolutely. That was um, a really enjoyable talk to, to to put together and to to think about, and really the, the where that the inspiration for that or the build up to that was really thinking about one of the major health challenges that we're facing globally right now, which is overweight and obesity, and that leads into the concept of metabolic health, which is an area that we continue to unravel further, right? We're starting mm-hmm. to understand the difference between metabolically healthy and overweight or metabolically unhealthy and obese and more metabolically unhealthy and underweight, you know, and malnutrition. Mm-hmm. And, and there's so many different permutations of that, but it is absolutely a global problem. Um, and it will only um, continue to grow and to expand. And even, you know, there's recent publications that have been out that looking at the prevalence of obesity and even you know laboratory defined metabolic syndrome in children the numbers are concerning and so this is a challenge that all of us in the, in the healthcare and provider industry are going to have to think about solving because of the long term uh, risks and morbidity and mortality that can arise from it and Obviously, there are a variety of different ways to to define metabolic syndrome, but really at the core of it is it's really imbalances that are leading to inflammation in the body. And from that kind of central hub, there are different spokes of systems and organs that can lead or progress to failure or, or pathology. And one of those which has been described, I think, extensively and has received a significant amount of attention is that of the progression of going from a healthy liver 
to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, cirrhosis, and then potentially even, even liver cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma. And certainly not everyone progresses down that pathway, and there are different both hosts and environmental factors that drive that progression. But again, I think it's a story that's fairly well at least recognized or appreciated. Uh Um, And and if we tie that to the microbiome as well, there's been a lot of data looking at associations of, um, you know, decreases in diversity of the microbiota and the flora in these chronic metabolic conditions, particularly with liver disease, increased presence of specific strains, excuse me, that are uh, particularly inflammatory. And again, it, it centralizes around the liver and fatty liver disease and progression. And I think there's another parallel spoke to that story, which kind of fits in the same progression and and buckets, so to say, of of disease progression within that metabolic health, metabolic spectrum, uh, syndrome spectrum, and that's the pancreas. And there are, there's evidence that demonstrates that there's an entity of non-alcoholic fatty pancreatic disease. NAFPD, just not the easiest thing to say. <laughs> and this was actually first described in the 1930s um, in a c- cadaveric study in which the investigator noticed that there was a difference in amount of fat that was in the pancreases of obese and lean individuals. And so this has been an entity that's been around and it's been, I think, recognized more and more and described in the literature. And obviously we can see it when we see it on, on CT scans or ultrasounds or MRI, it's, it's present. And what you can see is that there's a similar progression that we described in fatty liver disease from NASH or NAFLD to NASH to cirrhosis and, and liver cancer that you may see a parallel one in the pancreas, which is going from this fatty pancreas disease to perhaps fatty pancreatitis. There's certainly, I think, more work to be done there to understand that. And there's differences of opinions if that's an entity. But again, we're exploring ideas here which then can lead to chronic pancreatitis or scarring and fibrosis of the pancreas, which then can lead in the, you know similar fashion to hepatocellular carcinoma, pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, pancreatic cancer. And so you can see these stages line up with each other and you have similar drivers of disease in both thinking about host factors as well as inflammatory, the inflammatory cascade that's driven by both peripheral adipose tissue as well as adipose tissue within the organ itself. And then um, it's an interesting piece of the story is that most individuals who have fatty liver disease probably already have fatty pancreas disease. But if you have fatty pancreas disease, it doesn't necessarily mean you have fatty liver disease. So is it a precursor or kind of a, a biomarker or leading to in part of the progression to fatty liver disease? Could this be an early sign of that? Or is it a completely independent entity? And yes, about the microbiome and and how does this fall into place? And actually the the microbiome is, the the pancreas plays a major role in regulating or providing balance to the microbiome itself. So as we mentioned previously, the, the pancreas puts out a significant amount of fluid on a daily basis. And that pancreatic juice contains pancreatic enzymes, bicarbonate to help regulate the pH, as well as antimicrobial peptides. And those antimicrobial peptides prevent the adhesion of some bacteria to the gut. 
Lipase, one of the digestive enzymes, has been associated with increasing the abundance of favorable, favorable bacteria like Acromensia species. And so in a healthy pancreas also influences the substrate, right, that passes through our gut. So if we're not digesting our food or absorbing it properly, you're sending a different substrate throughout the intestinal tract. So different bacteria like different food, right? It's kind of like, you know, fertilizing your garden and you're giving different substrates of different things you're going to preferentially grow in relation to that. And so it begs the question in, in it's something that we're learning more about is how is this relationship of pancreatic function and the microbiome play into health as well as this kind of progression or inflammatory progression? I think there, there's still more questions to, to be answered. There is some longitudinal data, data that was done in, uh, in Pomerania that looked at pancreatic function in the microbiota, intestinal microbiota over time, and it demonstrated that stable pancreatic function was associated with a more diverse and stable intestinal microbiota. And so then, it, again, it goes back to the question, if you have declining function or abnormal function, what, is that, you know, what does that look like in terms of disease or causing disease or being associated with it? And we're also starting to now see associations between different patterns and the diversity of the microbiota and pancreatic cancer. And this includes both the oral microbiome, the intestinal microbiome, as well as within the, the pancreatic tumor itself has its own distinct microbiome. And these are being associated with both disease progression and outcomes. And so I think there's a building case here and a building story that needs to be explored further about the gut pancreas access and in how it, it, it contributes to both health and disease. Yes, I, I totally agree. And I think, and not dissimilar from the field of the gut microbiome itself, is we are starting to understand the importance of it. We're starting to understand key features like uh, diversity in the microbiome and richness and things like that. But exactly how to utilize that to even prevent let alone treat pathophysiology, uh, we're not there yet. I agree. Th there's much work to be done to understand this. And I, I think it, it will be the microbiome will, is and will continue to be, and we'll learn even more about it, a powerful tool in terms of, of health. Um, it, it's, it's a complex environment, right? It's a living environment. It changes. Mm -hmm. It responds to so many things. It changes throughout the day. It changes in response to what you put into it, environmental factors. I mean, so many different elements that it's not, this is not a simple math equation, right? This is super complicated calculus. And so there are many questions to be answered, but I do think as we, you know, it, we are required and it is our responsibility to continue to, to generate the evidence and the data to demonstrate how we can use this as a tool for health. And there are certainly, you know, there are different cases or entities or, or health areas where we're starting to see improvements in that. Certainly recently there's been the approvals of the, the FMT products for Clostridium difficile infection. Mm -hmm. And, but we're still, we're getting there, you know, and we're building the evidence. And I think there's greater attention on it, as you pointed out, as to it, its role in, in health and disease. Um, and I think it's exciting that we're starting to see those connections and make those connections and explore those connections, perhaps in ways we hadn't previously thought of um, when considering the, the microbiota. Now, what should clinicians know about preventing 
the progression or this progression in their patients? That's a great question, Jenna. And, and in, in part, I think, as we've just discussed a little bit, is we still have so much to learn in this space. I mean, this is truly, um, you know, uh, on the, the front edge of science and thinking about, again, how, how does this influence health? I think a key point for me is to not forget about the pancreas and to not dismiss it. Um, there are so many patients that come in with, you know, chronic abdominal symptoms from pain to diarrhea or even constipation, bloating, whatever it may be. And it's to not forget about the pancreas. And I, I think we have a, a bit of an inherent bias in thinking that pancreatic disease only occurs in individuals who abuse alcohol. Um, and, and certainly that's um, a, a common association that, and it's not entirely accurate. Certainly alcohol use plays a role in disease onset and progression. But even as we discussed earlier, the child that goes over the handlebars of a bike that develops acute pancreatitis and then maybe unfortunately progresses on to more complex or severe disease, alcohol's not a role in that, right? And so we need to think about pancreas, pancreatic function, changes in pancreatic function over time. We know as individuals age, there's a natural kind of atrophy of the pancreas. And so what role does that play in, in nutrition of the elderly and frailty? And do we have to, we have to think about how, what role does it play in that population? And so again, I think it's, it, the key thing for me is don't forget about it. Think about it as you're evaluating these patients. Is it a potential etiology? And and that would be a major first step in just even having it be a consideration. Um, and then certainly there are things that we know drive pancreatic disease, as I've already mentioned, alcohol is one, smoking is another. Um, and those are key environmental factors, but also just, you know, the usual, I would say, things that we think about in terms of maintaining health. So thinking about uh, having a healthy weight, achieving that healthy metabolic status, whatever, however you want to define that, um, but getting in, you know, ensuring that we're monitoring blood glucose and we're uh, achieving euglycemia, eating fiber, and all, all of those things that we think about health in general will benefit the health of the pancreas as well. But again, key point is don't forget about it. No, that's wonderful. And I think uh, listeners for this podcast are, are definitely with you on the all things that keep you generally healthy. Uh, I, th- I feel like that is one theme that seems to go between no matter what the topic is. It's like, mm-hmm. well, if you just do all the things that generally keep you healthy, it will help support whatever we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Not that it's easy. I get it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I struggle too. I, 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 my field is nutrition and I don't always eat perfectly, right? It we are human beings, um, but yes. we can certainly try and make slightly better decisions um, most of the time. Absolutely. I think I think that's fair. <laughs> so this is obviously an emerging field. There's a lot of great research coming down the pipeline. What are you most looking forward to seeing? Yeah, and, and there's a lot. And so, I mean, you could easily say, well, everything. Well, <laughs> no, you're young. That's, uh, um, it, it is, I, I think... For me, I think the first point is is that the fact that this is is being explored 
and even evaluated and that we're, we're starting to understand and recognize. And you're seeing more papers that talk about the pancreas gut axis. I think it's, it's pretty natural in one sense it's directly attached, right? Um, that the fact that it's even being investigated, evaluated, and considered is, is exciting in and of itself. Um, and I think in, in that sense, that's, that's step one. But what I think is going to be really interesting and is how can we use the microbiome as, you know, either something we modulate to benefit health in pancreatic health, we're thinking about pancreatic function or digestion or absorption. And as it relates to pancreatic function and, or how do we use the microbiome as something to predict or prognosticate in pancreatic disease. And, and as I've mentioned a, a little bit already, we're starting to see that with pancreatic cancer a bit. Um, and so how can we use the microbiota as kind of that, that pivot point or that interface of the input output of it to understand um, the progression of, of health and disease? And so it, it's still, I would say, a, a fairly broad ambiguous answer, if you will. <laughs> but I think it's still, we're still in such an early stage with regard to the pancreas, at least in my opinion. And, and certainly there, there are others who are, are more aggressively pursuing generating data and evidence in this space. And I still think we have, we have a ways to go. Um, but I think even just that, that we're exploring it and understanding it and, and paying more attention to it is, is incredibly I agree. I absolutely agree. Uh, it's the beauty of being a scientist. We get to to look down the road and see what's coming and, and hopefully participate in it as well. So that is uh, something we will all look forward to, but it is all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us, Mark. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks for listening. The Office of Integrative Medicine and Health produces the GW Integrative Medicine podcast with funds from your donations. Your generosity allows us to raise awareness of the benefits of integrating whole person care, including evidence-based complementary therapies, into healthcare broadly. Help us continue to grow the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation on our website, smhs.gwu.edu slash OIMH. Click the Give Now button on the left. While you're there, sign up for our free monthly newsletter for even more evidence-based content, including free webinars.